Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name's Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in British policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it's really been like to be in the police in Britain for the last 30 years. In the podcast, I'll talk about the different jobs that I did, and I'll interview some people who also did some really interesting things in policing. I'll give you my thoughts about what's been going on recently in the news to help you understand how it all works. Spoiler alert, it's not like it is on the telly. This podcast is the real deal. I'm going to be discussing some quite disturbing things from time to time, and there may be some swearing, so probably best to keep the kids out of the room. Everything that I say and have written comes out of a place of great love for policing, but I know that some people won't agree with everything they hear or read, and that's fine. All I ask is that you listen with an open mind And if you go away feeling that you know a bit more about what policing in Britain is all about, and perhaps have a little more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello everybody, hope you're well. Welcome back to another episode of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. This week I'm absolutely delighted to be interviewing my ex-colleague, uh, Keith Fraser, who is a superintendent in the West Midlands Police and is now the chair of the Youth Justice Board of England and Wales. And uh, I'm really looking forward to catching up with him because it's ages since I've spoken to him. Uh, and as well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing about how his life has changed since leaving the police. But before I start that interview, uh, just maybe a quick recap on one or two bits and bobs from the week that we've just had in policing. So anybody who's been listening to the podcast right from the start will know that it hasn't been a great time for policing in the UK for all sorts of uh, reasons. And one of the things that is probably really depressing to me as well as to lots of serving police officers is that several of our colleagues have latterly come to the attention of uh, the wider public for all the wrong reasons. And some of those things have been through the courts and I can talk about that and uh, one or two others haven't yet been. So I've got to be much more careful about what I say. So as you know, um, a Metropolitan Police officer has been charged with the murder of Sarah Everard. And that is before the court's going to be before the courts. I'm not going to say anything more about that. But obviously that came as a, a terrible shock to every police officer in the country, I suppose. Um, And whilst that trial will take place and the evidence will be put before the jury, so I'm not even going to sort of second guess as to what the outcome of that will be. The other one, uh, which I talked about on a previous podcast, was the conviction of Ben Hannan, who's a Metropolitan Police Officer again uh, for membership of a prescribed terrorist organisation, an extreme right-wing terrorist organisation. Again, that was something that came as a terrible shock to the organisation, shameful uh, situation, Uh, how that person managed to get into the police is a a real concern and there must be questions now asked about the vetting process for people entering the police service as new recruits. And that's a particular concern at the moment because of uh, a thing called Operation Uplift, which was Boris Johnson's promise to recruit 20,000 police officers to replace the 20,000 that were lost under Theresa May's tenure as Home Secretary and Prime Minister. In reality, it's going to need to be something between 50 and 55,000 over a three-year period in order to recruit the 20,000 lost during the tenure of Theresa May, as well as the 30-odd thousand who are going to be resigning or retiring during that period. So the net of all that is that there's going to be a very, very large number of people coming into the organisation who are going to be extremely inexperienced over the next two or three years. So having had these really horrible incidents involving serving officers uh, coming to the limelight for all the wrong reasons, um, I think our hearts collectively sank when we saw the news yesterday that another Metropolitan Police officer Uh, Kashif Mahmood um, had been jailed uh, for seizing hundreds of thousands of pounds uh, drug money for an organised crime gang uh, 
who are based, I believe, in Dubai. So what appears to have been happening is that the drug gang uh, was passing on information uh, around uh, movement of large quantities of money and drugs. Uh, these details were then passed to Mahmoud, who uh, would then go out in full uniform, driving a marked police car, and actually stop uh, the drug a shipment and steal the money and the drugs uh, and recycle that back into circulation via the organised crime group that he was involved in. And all of this came about as a result of the compromise of a thing called EncroChat, which was a supposedly unbreakable secure mobile phone system that organised crime gangs were using all over the world which uh, was then compromised by law enforcement, I believe the National Crime Agency, who were able to then decrypt a lot of these conversations and identify very, very large numbers of serious criminals operating within the UK. And Mahmoud was clearly one of those. So when I read that story yesterday, I was really horrified because it brought back memories, very unhappy memories for uh, West Midlands police officers, uh, my previous forces, the West Midlands, uh, we had experienced a very similar thing to this back in 2017, where two Birmingham-based uniform PCs, PC Wahid Husman and PC Tassib Majid, uh, were basically doing pretty much exactly the same thing uh, by going out again, mostly, I believe, in full uniform, driving marked police cars and uh, stealing drugs and cash off rival drug gangs. So... So the thing that really sort of struck me, um, apart from the depressing fact that this had been going on by a serving police officer, was the rather pathetic sentence of eight years that Mahmoud was given. Uh, those two Birmingham-based officers back in 2017 were sentenced to 15 and 16 years imprisonment, uh, respectively, which I think is a much more uh, appropriate sentence for such a despicable crime by serving police officers. Um, so I'm slightly uh, surprised and, and um, dismayed that Mahmoud was only given eight years. My, my view is that uh, this is clearly someone who is operating on behalf of an organised crime group, uh, purporting to be a police officer and someone who is there to keep the public safe when actually they're there to do the exact opposite. So so yeah, no one hits a bent cop more than a good cop. And in my experience, uh, 99 point something or other of police officers, and certainly 100% of the police officers I've worked with over the years are all very good people. So it really, really frustrates all of us whenever these things happen. Okay then, so let's uh, now get into the interview with the very lovely Keith Fraser. Can I just say, Keith, I'm absolutely delighted to have you on the podcast. It's such a joy to see your smiling face again and, um, yeah, to be able to catch up on a personal level as well as to hear everything that you've been up to. So, uh, so yeah, so do you just want to sort of introduce yourself, um, what you're currently doing, what your role is, and then we'll talk about that later on in a little bit more detail. Ian, firstly, great to see you as well. And thank, thanks for the opportunity to come and have a chat with you. It's on a personal level, it's great to see you. And then obviously on the wider level, it's great to just have this conversation that we can share with others. As you just said, said my name in relation to what I did. I was in the police for 32 years. Um, towards the latter part of my career and post my career, I'm now involved in a number of different charitable organizations and also chair of youth support board for England and Wales and also more recently appointed as a, a commissioner on the race and ethnic disparity commission. Wow so let's just say you're not get, you're not getting the hang of this retirement thing are you really you know so people leave the police they're meant to kind of put their feet up and kind of go on <laughs> a potter around the garden or whatever but it's clearly you haven't done that have you? Well no I, I, I I, I had to do this because um, I, 
I, if I didn't do this, I would have stayed in the police until I dropped, to be honest, because I actually loved my time in the police. Somebody asked me yesterday during an interview, you know, I'd done 32 years, and they said to me, would you do this all over again? And I'd say, yes, I would apply again in a heartbeat to that career. And they yeah. could not believe, you know, <laughs> because sometimes how policing is viewed externally, that somebody after doing 32 years that would want to go back and do it and do it all, do it all again. Yes, there are ups and downs, but on the whole, if you focus on why you're there for and what you can get out of it, what you can actually achieve, then you know it makes the experience a lot more positive. It's generally very, very positive for me. And I started planning my leave, and you probably you won't know this five years before I actually went. Right. And if I didn't do that, I would not have. I would not have gone. So I had to have strategically, because as a senior cop, that's what we kind of do, strategically yeah. in my head, these yeah. bubbles around what I was going to do. And that was based around after I went for a promotion and I was unsuccessful going for the chief sort of stuff. So um, so maybe just to, to help people um, who are listening understand kind of how we know each other. So, so you and I are both, um, we've led kind of quite parallel um, careers in, in some ways because um, we were both in the Westminster Police our paths cross. It probably would have been maybe I don't know when I was an inspector and you were a chief inspector, possibly. Um, but but you joined uh, the Met Police, didn't you? As I as as I did. So you joined in eighty five, and then you finished up in so what was that two thousand and eighteen, something like that. Seventeen in the seventeen. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so so yes, yeah, so you ended up as superintendent. I ended up as a superintendent. So my last encounter with you, probably operationally in the West Mids, was I was a detective chief inspector in force intelligence, and you were on the local command team at Wolverhampton, wasn't that wasn't that right? So so our paths used to cross periodically when I was up at Wolves, um, dealing with my team. So Hope so yeah, for pain. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I had this weird, I had this weird sort of semi-nomadic lifestyle at that time, where I, I had, uh, I was responsible for all ten geographically based intelligence teams across the force. So I basically uh, led this sort of nomadic lifestyle, travelling across the West Midlands. Yeah. And uh, and I was like, I literally lived on buses, trams, trains, trying to go out and see all my. <laughs> see all my teams so uh so yes and you were you were at Wolverhampton so listen um tell us a little bit about your career be really interesting to hear about your career what what sort of prompted you let's go right back even before you joined then so what prompt what prompted you to to want to be a police officer in the first place I think I'm one of those uh, one of those rare I don't know if it's that rare really because quite often you you see people that are in policing some of them it's kind of a, a vocation for them and a proper vocation they've wanted to do it for an awful long time they might come in come into it after another career or whatever but quite often people want to do it not for the money not what they're going to earn but more about what they can do Mm -hmm. i first the first written evidence of that and i've got written evidence was when i was about eight years of age and i said Mm -hmm. i want to be a police officer my mother brought it out when i was 21 my 21st birthday (laughs) party and, and read it out (laughs) <laughs> the first time I applied, I was 14, and I wrote to the Home Office, filled out all my correct details and all the rest of it, and um, somebody wrote back to me from the Home Office, some lovely faceless civil servant wrote a personal letter back to me, actually encouraging me to reapply when I was 18 and a half, uh-huh. and also sent me a whole load of information. And that wow. faceless civil servant actually carried on and supported my motivation around that. All right, okay. Now, yeah, which which was really, you know, I'd love to find out who that person was. Did actually keep the letter, but I've lost it now, unfortunately. And where were you? Where were you living at the time? I was in I was in Birmingham, so I'm a Bromley. So okay, so you're yeah. a Brom by by sort of birth. Okay, yeah, from birth and lived there for the first part of my life until I went down to until I went down to London. I think the things that motivated me, looking back on it, was a question you asked me, and, I, and, and I've had a chance to kind of think about it. It's a question that people ask a lot. It's around my parents, really. Hmm. And around that, they're two people both involved in the um, in the church and other things out, outside the church, and they did an awful lot of things to help other people. Mm-hmm. But what I saw them doing was helping other people, but not ever seeking any praise for it. Quite often, helping people behind the scenes and people not knowing that mm-hmm. they'd help them. Like, for example, I'll I'll, re- I'll re- I will reveal this. My they used to be flowers that used to be in the church 
mm. every every week and the minister didn't know who where these flowers were coming from so he kept on asking the congregation and it wasn't until years later and I can't remember how we found out that my father he couldn't always get into church because he was a bus driver and the shifts etc he used to pop into church while there was nobody in there put flowers around the church and then carry back on his bus route into um town oh, to the awesome. center but never told anybody he right. was doing it. I can't remember for like me how he found out. It, it might have been before, you know, shortly before he went to upstairs up to um, heaven yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that we found out. But it was things like that that really struck me. It's made a big impression that someone, so giving. that sense of public service, yeah. Yeah, how they were so giving to giving to others, but not seeking anything back in return as a result of it. And that kind of analogy I put that into policing, really, because you mm. give an awful lot to people most people don't see what you give. Uh, you know, vast majority of it is without thanks. But you mm. still, police officers still will carry on giving, despite yeah. the fact that they're not they're not thanked for it. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, actually, and um, and, and something that that um, I think you're absolutely spot on. Um, we we do an awful lot of work, don't we, as police officers in society, and and a lot of it feels very thankless, doesn't it? A lot of the time. Uh, you're dealing with people who are um, leading quite chaotic life, lifestyles, uh, uh, you know, and, and to be fair to, to them, you know, they've probably had a very hard, li- very hard lives and very hard, you know, difficult start in life. And it's not just a difficult start. It's very often a difficult start, middle and end, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, so it does feel it does feel quite uh, thankless sometimes. But but I think ultimately, you know, that you're doing it for the greater good, because if you don't do it, then nobody else is going to do it. Well, will they? So, so you joined the Met. So, what was it particularly about the Met that that why why did you go to the Met? Why didn't you stay in Birmingham? Well, strategically, what I'd wanted, I was always wanted to be a police officer. So, I planned all of my education around getting the the minimum that you needed to get into the police in relation to O levels and all the rest of it. And uh, my first, I applied to go to the West Mids as a cadet when they used to do the cadets. Mm-hmm. Um, unsuccessful in that. So I then decided that when I was 18 and a half, I would send this four line letter around to every single police force in the country or police service in the country, asking for an application form. Mm-hmm. I sent exactly the same letter to the Met and also to the West Midlands. The West Midlands said, when you finish doing your A-levels, write back to us. And the Met sent me an application form. And so I just followed the application process. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't a yeah, decision yeah. to leave home. That wasn't not that wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't on right. my mind, but right. I did want to be a police officer. Right. Yeah. yeah. So um, interesting. So in 1985, it's interesting because you you would have been uh, you know leaving Birmingham, kind of around the time when I was arriving in Birmingham because okay. I went because I went to university in Birmingham between 1984 and 1988. Um, my memories of Birmingham in those days were, it was pretty grim, wasn't it? I mean, it certainly wasn't the Birmingham that we we know and love today, you know, full of uh, corporate glass and steel buildings and Grand Central Station. I challenge that. <laughs> challenge it in one way that it seems grey, but the people are absolutely fantastic. I'm yeah, well, I, as a I was... I was just going to come on and say that. <laughs> no, I was honestly because because it was a dead it was a dead friendly place, wasn't it? And um, the people were and are still great. And uh, but but in architecturally, maybe I should have qualified that. Uh, architecturally, it was quite a grim place, wasn't it? Uh, and I tell a funny story uh, in one of my other podcasts about going for an interview at the army careers office so i i had a i had a sort of a the shortest military career in history i think um where i went to the the army careers office in uh, new street and i went for a cup of coffee at the palisades remember the palisades i mean that was pretty grim wasn't it in those days but anyway moving on to the met so you went to you went to london where did you where did you first get posted i was first posted to barking and dagnum which is on the Edge, I suppose, on the edge of London, really. You know, the next bit out from that, you've got Essex, you've got kind of Havering and stuff like that. Well, yeah, Dagenham, yeah. And then Barking there, classified as being in Essex. But then out after that, you've got yeah, yeah. Um, Havering, as you'll know, in relation to Romford and all the rest of it. Yeah, so, yeah. firstly, Barking and Dagenham. So that's really interesting for me. And again, I don't want to sort of, um, you know, make sweeping generalizations here but that was a predominant so there's a couple of things here for me but that's predominantly certainly in those days i'm sure predominantly a white part of east london wasn't it 
And as a as a as a black officer in 1985, you were. I'm making an assumption here, but I don't imagine there would have been many black officers in Dagenham and Barking in 1985. Would that be a correct assumption to make? We were quite rare, probably just as rare as we are now, but, uh, you know, rarer than, yeah, I suppose very few black people in um, the, in the police service. I was the only one on my shift, in effect, possibly the only one in the station, if I remember rightly, looking right. back at parking, mm-hmm. I think. And, you know, and not many black people in the, um, in, in the community. But that didn't kind of fuss me, really, because I knew where I, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, I knew what I was there to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The effects. I was there for for people. At the yeah, end. yeah, yeah. Definitely. And and I and I I don't want to. Um, I'm I'm the first to sort of say I, I think it's really dangerous to that people should be defined on the basis of anything, whether it's their sexuality or their color or their um, background or their religion or whatever. But but it's it's just interesting to ask the question as to what was your experience in those days did you did you encounter racism from the community or for that matter from the organization okay i'll i'll i will come to answering your question but i found the police the police very much like a family it right. was it was absolutely fantastic we had for example two cleaners there peggy and maureen i remember their names they lived locally and if a shout came up and we all disappeared off out. We'd come back in and Peggy and Maureen would have put our breakfast or our meals to one side and made sure they were kept warm for us until we came back. We used to pick them up when we were on at the end of a night shift and bring them into work and stuff like that. They were absolutely, absolutely fantastic. In relation to the wider bit, very much looked after by by my colleagues. You know, I'm still in touch with them now, you know, a lot of them now, 35 years later. Yeah, yeah. They're still really good friends of mine. You know, some of my best friends are, you know, people that I met at Hendon when right. I started my training, still in touch with her. I'm still in touch with the very first person I spoke to and I went to Hendon. Really? And he's one of my best friends now. Oh, yeah. wow. That's great. So I'm still it? in touch with him. Um, and the other bit, with the public, in the main, no, but more with the public than in policing, probably nothing in, in policing that, you know, that you could talk about. So, you know, there was... Yeah one individual that kind of stood out for me with the type of jokes that he he said. Yeah. Um, that he thought, oh, good grief, that, that's not on type thing. But yeah, yeah. In, in general, the, you know, the colleagues I worked alongside were absolutely fantastic and super protective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember one incident where I was at um, a polling station. I think it was in, in Dagenham, if I remember rightly, or could be Barking, but they're all one anyway. So in there having a chat with these couple of women in there and got on really well, two two white white ladies. And on the way out, the older one of the um, of the two, we'd been talking for ages and laughing and joking. On the way out, the older one shouted back towards me and said, you're a really nice chap, you are. But the only thing that's wrong with you is the fact that you're black. And then the other one went, Mom, like that, and then they walked off out. Now, the fact she felt that she could say that to me, I was quite horrified, really, but I was also shocked about the fact you were able to have a conversation with with somebody on such a jovial level and have that interaction. And afterwards, she thought nothing of passing that comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. My my observations about certainly the Met, uh, well, I think the police service in general, actually, is that, everyone gets the piss taken out of them don't they everyone and it doesn't kind of matter you know whether you're from scotland wales and the thing about the met particularly in those days and i certainly find this i'm sure you did as well was that people joined the met literally from all over the uk mm-hmm. didn't they everywhere and and there was a fantastic diversity of accents on every shift wasn't there um i mean and, and that's one of the great joys of the met i think um there was actually very few Londoners, as I recall. Um, you know, in my in in my shift, I think there was three or four people from Wales. There was loads of jocks. Sorry, Scottish people. Um, I, I mean, I got absolutely I got absolutely ripped to pieces from my accent from Northern Ireland. You know what I mean? And um, but it was it was all done in such good humour most most of the time. I would suggest you know. But uh, anyway, moving on from that. So, so how long did you stay in uh, London for? Twenty years. Twenty years. I didn't realise you were there for that long. Yeah, 
yeah, quite a considerable amount of time. Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, I, I wouldn't have left if it wasn't for you know sort of like personal circumstances. So right, okay. So um, what did you do? What different jobs did you do uh, when you were in the Met? Good grief, a whole range of stuff from being you know on the, working on the response to being you know the fast car driver on the on the area car bit of plain clothes work, CID, DI. Detective Chief Inspector, neighbor oh, wow. Bobby, child abuse. Oh, bless you. So you, you know, really were uh, in the thick of it then, weren't you? Oh, it was all, all of it. All the stuff that I did there was all pretty much front frontline stuff. Even when I finished off at New Scotland Yard, although it was a remote, not strategic, it was a centralised thing that I was doing, it was supporting things operationally from, you know, because I, I set up this thing called the Cultural and Communities Resource Unit, and that was about using the diverse life skills of people within the organisation, so police staff and also police officers. And I would get involved in anything from working with spies to working with neighbourhood cops. So that yeah. was how much it kind of spanned in relation to activity. And that was a really fascinating bit of work. You know, to be able to deploy staff to work with spies and then the next thing yeah. you deploying staff who'd be working all over the UK or across the world or across London, you yeah, really yeah. get to understand how policing could help in a lot of different ways. And also how people, despite their job, because I'd use typists, I'd use porters, I'd use PCs to go, you know, uniform PCs to work with CID, you yeah. actually saw how much more you could get out of people. Yeah, definitely. You knew what skills they had. Yeah, rather than sort of pigeonholing them. Um, so just thinking of context then. So that was, so you left in about 2005. So in the last few years of your time in the Met, so that's post 9-11. Um, yeah, so I left the Met in 2002. I was a, on a special branch surveillance team um, just before I left. So we were, we were sort of very much uh, running around after, um, you know, uh, Islamic fundamentalist extremists, having having before that, you know, been very focused on um, provisional IRA, I suppose, and the real IRA. So, so the context of policing in London had changed a lot, hadn't it? Um, and and we were we were working in a sort of a whole new kind of reality of potential suicide bombers and and everything. So I'm trying to think. So 2005 would have been just around the same time as the. Um, as the seven seven bombings, would it? Did you leave before that or after that? It was after after that, and it was quite a significant change, I think. And it and it brought home some things to me as well around the um, because before that it it was, you know, the te the terrorism, the terrorist threat was linked to the Irish conflict, mm -hmm. Northern Ireland, and the challenges that that we've got there. But after that, it very much moved towards the you know the islamic fundamentalists and mm. and that it moved the whole threat changed and all the risks changed and i do remember um, um a real change in my thinking as well around the public and how we should interact with the public because mm. i was a detective inspector at the time and um the, you know we'd had the author deaths off off the back of that and then there was, you know, we then had to, there was things that you had to do locally in the borough in relation to there was an increase in hate crime. There was, an, you know, just the, you had to deal with the threat as well. You had yeah. to deal with community cohesion. And I remember meeting and going to meet a number of people, lots and lots of people from the um, Muslim community in the boroughs I worked mm. in. And I remember one chap saying to me, I can't turn round now for police officers now wanting to be my best friend and years before when I wanted to chat to you when I wanted to talk to you just didn't want to know and yeah. now you are here there and everywhere and I can't move for it yeah and that kind of really brought home to me and kind of reinforced things that happened to me before previously about how important it is that police build those relationships regardless yeah. of you know what's going on at the time yeah yeah police need to build relationships across communities yeah 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 no you're absolutely right and um um and we'll come on to that point in a little bit and um, when we talk about the years of austerity because i think that's where for me anyway um that's where policing really took the biggest hit i suppose um so we'll talk about that in a little bit so 2005 you move up to um uh, the West Midlands, and where do you where do you go? What's your first posting in the West Midlands? 
first posting was in Handsworth F3. It's now closed now. Um, And I came the time to the back end of some significant disturbances that you'd had in in Handsworth. Mm -hmm. I don't remember those. Yeah, yeah. There were a number of shots fired at police officers, police helicopters. Yeah. You know, so it was, again, it was another very, very challenging time. It was also challenging for me and the other person that came as well, because I came in as a, as a chief inspector and a uniform chief inspector. Yeah. There are only two uniform chief inspectors across the whole of the West Midlands, and I was one of them. Right. And it didn't, and the, I found that the uh, management team, the senior management team, were quite slim at the time. I was thinking, good grief, after coming from London, yeah, yeah, where yeah. you've got senior teams which are a lot, lot larger and a lot more resilient, suddenly to come join a senior management team of three, yeah, on a yeah. division as they were there, I was thinking, good grief, how do we cope with this? Yeah, so, and, I, and then so, I came in and worked alongside that. So for, for anybody listening who doesn't understand how these things work, typically, I would say, uh, in this day and age, a, a command unit, a police command unit, uh, is a sort of a geographical, uh, it covers a geographical area. Typically, it'll cover a local authority area. Um, so in London, that might be something like, uh, Chelsea or some maybe Camden or it might be um, Richmond or something like that Kingston in in Birmingham it'll be uh, each command unit will will cover a particular local authority area such as um, you know Sandwell Dudley Wolverhampton Walsall etc um, so typically in a command unit today you've got a chief superintendent you've got a superintendent and you've probably got um, typically two or three possibly chief inspectors typically two depending on the size of it so you're only one of two uniform chief inspectors in the entire force which is rather odd isn't it Uh, yeah yeah Uh, in the west Midlands, because the structure was very slim i don't know if you remember it where you had the chief superintendent superintendents and the detective chief inspector that's it and so i then i i then i you know a role was carved out for me uh F3 in, in Handsworth to kind of work alongside the chief inspector. So I kind of morphed two, two roles, really, uh-huh. in the operations superintendent and also the, um, the, the detective chief inspector that was there at the time. So I so I came to the West Midlands uh, in 2002. So you arrived three years after me. I mean, um, what were your uh, what were your kind of observations, key observations about the differences between coming to the West Midlands from uh, from the Met. What were the key things that stick in your mind? <laughs> He's laughing. <laughs> I mean, so, I've got so many stories I could tell about this because I came as a sergeant. You see, it was you came as a chief inspector. So your experiences will probably be very different to mine. But I find it. Uh, I'll tell you what. Let me answer the question. How, how um, I find it. Stuff. And then you can answer. Okay, I'll show you mine, and then you can show me yours. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so I I find it um, like stepping back in time um, in 2002 when I came up. It was like the police had been in the Met probably 10 to 15 years before. Um, it was a much more uh, robust sort of uh, culture, slightly a little bit inward looking actually. Ever you know, people in the West Midlands at that time. And maybe even still to a certain extent, they think life starts and ends in the West Midlands. And actually, um, and I suppose that might be the case in a lot of other parts of the country. But but yeah, so so what, what were your what were your sort of immediate observations? Yeah, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I'll caveat this with I think, and this, I know this isn't going to be possible, <laughs> what I'm going to say here now, is I think that every single police officer should not work in one police service. They, yes. should, move, they should move about. And they I totally agree. Their force area. I totally and, agree. And, and, you know, and that, I'd say that to all the Metropolitan Police officers that are there and serve all the way through and then all year. And then, but I know that's not something which is going to happen because it then, you know, it then brought home to me the, the things that were happening in the Met that were excellent, so the things that were happening in the West Mids that were good as well. Yeah. And I didn't find the West Mids that receptive. That's just my own personal view yeah. of ideas from outside. So it was, yeah. despite the fact it was a large large police service yeah it was still very um supposed to be who, who you know yeah and there were real strong networks there very very much so yeah break into and yeah. so it's how do you break into those really strong networks i didn't feel that so much in the um in the mess but it could be yeah. because i yeah. grew up yeah. in, in the mess yeah. box and police and so grew up through those networks so i didn't feel it 
Yeah, yeah. But, no, uh, I, I know exactly what you mean. And, uh, and and I suppose there's something there, isn't there? I mean, about the 43-4 the structure of policing in England and Wales, you know, and I've been very um, clear about what I think about that. I think it's a really, really um, dysfunctional and inefficient uh, model uh, for policing. And I, I definitely think there's something there about saying, uh, if you're going to be a police officer in England and Wales, yes, by all means, you can be, you can spend... Um, you can be attached to a particular part of the country, but I definitely think there's something there about being exposed to other styles of policing, whether that's rural, semi-rural, inner city. So, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you think about how sort of um, stuck the thinking is in some parts of the country, then uh, imagine how much more stuck it would be if you had always spent your entire career in a very small rural force. You know, and I don't mean to say that as a, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of people who have spent their entire careers in large rural f forces, but I'm just not sure how healthy it is from a policing point of view. Yeah, and you, find, you, you even found it in within the force area as well. So it's not necessarily around moving around the force. I think officers, you know, and, and then the public will hate this as well. And then also the stakeholders that we work with because they want their police officers to stop in one place. That's the biggest complaint, isn't it? That yeah. we move about too much. But I even, you know, even the West Mids, I found that you go and you move because I've worked all over the West Mids, you know, Place I probably didn't touch too much with Solihull and Coventry, but everywhere else I, mm. you know, worked quite a bit across those. But they were starkly different in the way that they were policed, and also the kind of yeah. mentality is probably the wrong word, but um, their experience of yeah. difference, experience of different communities, and then as a result of that, it then had an impact on their viewpoint around policing. And it's not even just the obvious, you know, you can go to different areas. And I looked at all the nighttime economies across mm. the West Midlands everywhere, and they're all policed totally differently. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's as a result of their their viewpoints and um, and what quite, they, that, you know, and their understanding. Yeah, yeah it's quite, quite, becomes, uh, yeah. it's quite parochial. It can be quite parochial, I suppose. But listen, um, I said I would come back to this, and I will. So... So 2005, you, you land in the West Midlands, you kind of get on and, you know, start your, your sort of get on with your career there. So, as you know, I've written a book all about how policing changed over the last 30 years. Um, and, and the bit that I suppose for me and for a lot of police officers became particularly painful, I suppose, was that horrible period sort of post 2010 when, you know, the finances for policing became really, 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 um, stretched, uh, big, big sort of cuts across uh, staffing, you know, nationally, we lost 20,000 officers, 23,000 members of police staff, many, many hundreds of police stations closed, uh, the dismantlement of sort of uh, what until then had been, in many ways, the flagship of policing, uh, which was sort of, for me, I suppose, neighbourhood policing had been such a successful innovation i suppose across the country so what were your what were your experiences of that period that's a bit of well, a loaded that's a bit of a, a bit of a loaded question isn't it but there you go you in to give me a loaded question there but I <laughs> the context you gave <laughs> i suppose i remember the planning for that and i remember the chief constable at the time and the conversations that we were having at headquarters and the kind of lead up to that because you kind of knew and you had a sense around what was going to happen and it was a lot of scenario thinking so what i would say is that senior policing and senior police staff senior police officers had an understanding around the risks and the threats before they actually landed and mm -hmm. were also really aware of the challenges that, that that you then face and i think the thing for me why it's why it was um really you know a really awful time in one way was the fact that policing was moving more towards prevention and intervention exactly very much towards this kind of we use this term upstream but yeah. policing was really starting to look at how can you use your neighborhood team really building the capacity around what you could do to stop things from happening not just looking at the individual who committed offense but their family looking at the communities etc etc yeah. and i think that just at the time when policing was really starting to expand into that work and do some really creative work with others that it always that it wanted to do its ability to do that was curtailed yeah and we tried to maintain that 
preventative uh, prevention intervention strategy. But you could see that policing just didn't have the resources and it had to focus in on what were its core things there to do, i.e. responding to crime, you know, respond to calls yeah. for service, you know, um, in investigation and... Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree. You won't be surprised to hear me say that I totally agree because, you know, certainly we all, we all sort of were on that journey together, weren't we? And, um, and I think we all sat there, kind of with our heads in our hands, uh, listening to, you know, uh, people like David Cameron and Theresa May at the time talking about um, policing and thinking, I, I don't think you even for one moment understand what it is that we do, um, and, yeah, to have, to have, to have got into those communities to have to be working with um, schools, working with uh, local charitable organizations, getting into families at a point when we could see that things were starting to go wrong and to be able to sort of put the wheel back on for want of a better word, uh, and then to have that all of that sort of swept away. Um, so uh, I don't want to sort of answer this question for you, but um, to what extent do you think that that contributed to the rise in things like violent crime, the knife crime uh, issues, county lines, all of that kind of stuff. Grief. I think, oh, good grief! That's a really that's a that's a hard one to answer. Really, I, you know, I wouldn't like to link it to that, but but the, but logic would tell you the police have got less of an ability and also the partners you work with less of an ability to prevent stuff that's going to have an impact on crime because i think we almost looked at policing in quite a simplistic way and to, and to a certain extent we still do we look at it in relation to things that we can kind of measure and yeah. if you can't you know and you're looking at crime was falling quite quite excuse me quite significantly hmm. but what wasn't falling was the demands on on police. Now, some people might say we dealt with things that we shouldn't have been dealing with, but a lot of the things that policing was dealing with, they were dealing with hidden harms, which there was a you know there was a kind of a better understanding around what was happening behind closed doors online, or you could look at you know you could look at some of those crimes that aren't so visible. So there was that. So there was a different type of policing needed. Yeah. And I don't think there was a real understanding around that different type of policing that was that that, that was needed around, around that. Yeah, yeah. And and so for me, yeah, potentially there was a, a void left mm. around that. I wouldn't like to put it all down to austerity. Mm. But I would have thought it. Yeah, I would have thought it would have had an impact on mm. that because not only did you see it here in policing, for example, mm. preventing around new services. I remember. You know, you're looking across local authorities across, you know, across the West Midlands and seeing this kind of just a simple thing like all the youth centres closing down and yeah, being yeah. centralised. So you're losing this kind of con this preventative contact right. yeah, yeah. with the communities. Yeah, and that's that's something I don't think I don't think they understood at all, did they? Um, the uh, people like Theresa May and people at the Home Office, I don't think they understood that that we can't get to a situation where. Uh, police are intervening in the end game scenario. We need to we need to be working with families, working with other agencies, and working as a sort of an ecosystem, a sort of a caring, supportive ecosystem. Uh, we're not just there to um, pick up the pieces when it all sort of starts going wrong. Listen, I'm going to park that for a bit. I just want to move on to your new role, uh, your role since leaving the police, because obviously, you know, um, and and I've really got to tip my hat off to you, Keith. You've you've really done fantastically well thank you um, um and you know you're now the the chair of the youth justice board of england and wales which is a very very senior and influential position nationally and and i'm so delighted for you and for everyone that you're in that position thank god because it's uh, incredibly important so so just tell us a little bit about what that role actually involves simple terms you are the voice of the children across the justice system in, in we came from an act back in 1998 which tried to bring together all of the disparate parts of the of the justice system that looked after youth justice so we are basically the only statutory organization that has responsibility for the oversight of the justice system so but it's around looking at it from that from the child's perspective 
So, and, and I think that's an absolutely key distinction around, and this is some of the challenge that we have now, and I think we had in the past, but we're getting more alive to it, is not looking at ad people who commit offences as, you know, when they're adults, and looking at children who commit offences, looking at them through the same lens. They need to be looked at differently, and you need to do things in, in different ways. So, we have oversight of the whole system, that, that's about challenging the system to make sure it's doing the things that it that it that it should be doing it's quite a complex system the the um, the justice system and it's also about those of those other parts those other government departments that are not part of the system but how do you link them into it as well so mm -hmm. one you've got the oversight role then you've got the other parts in relation to advising government ministers and also you know members mm -hmm. of the cabinet mm -hmm. you've got the party relation to working with community organisations such as youth use offending service and distributing grants you're looking and understanding what's going on so you're the ones that kind of um, I suppose um, the people have got bring the stats together and make those mm -hmm. stats real for yeah. people so that people can use them and try and get them out in some kind of understandable format and also mm -hmm. helping to develop good practice as well mm -hmm. Big thing for me as of what the key thing that we do is trying to make sure that the justice system sees children differently. And then those that work in the justice system or touch the justice system in some way see yeah. children differently. And when I say see them differently, I don't think the children in the justice system could be should be seen differently. And that's part of the challenge as well, which I would which I would go on to, because those kids that are in the justice system can be marginalized and not actually viewed in the in in the right way yeah, yeah and by me saying being there for the children does not mean that we are not there as well for the victims of crimes yeah, and yeah. also for safer communities yeah. those things are really interlinked i'll take it back to my days as a cop yeah. and this is one of the challenges that i sometimes have when i'm talking about things like child first where people might think i've lost the plot mm. Child first, just because you are talking about children doesn't mean that you are forgotten about. You mm. want to have fewer victims of crime yeah. out there and also you want to save the communities. Those things are really interlinked and it's yeah, yeah. how you make that real. Yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And and uh, and I think anyone who's worked in law enforcement for a long period of time who's got even half a brain um, can, can see that by doing exactly what you just described is that you are preventing further victims further down the line. So, you know, I think a really good example of all of this is things like, you know, county lines, for example. So you've got someone who is simultaneously a victim and an offender all at the same time. So for those who don't understand what county lines is, that is where a, uh, an organised crime group seeks to expand their market out into other parts of the country, typically grooming and exploiting very vulnerable young people uh, who are effectively children in order to take those drugs around the country as effectively drug mules and they're either bullied or they're you know bribed in order to do that so there you've got someone who is who is probably very very vulnerable uh, from a very damaged background who has been picked up by an organized crime group very cynically in order to get them to do their dirty work for you so i imagine county lines is a bit of a focus for you at the moment is it it's it's part of, it is it is part of it you know it comes under a kind of broader theme of exploitation so I'd say it's you know it's how children are exploited in order to you know they don't realise they are victims themselves they become part of um, some kind of pseudo family they think that the people around them are looking after them but they're actually being exploited and then if something goes wrong in relation to that child in relation to the crimes that they're committing. They're left hung out to dry, excuse the expression. Yeah, yeah, and this yeah. pseudo family that they thought was their family, their friends, or whatever, we'll just leave, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll just leave them. Now we've got a number of focuses out, you know, out there. Mm -hmm. Overrepresentation, so the overrepresentation of minority children, mm -hmm. the justice system, and also so some of the um, areas like exclusions around um, special educational needs in relation to in relation to um, neurodiversity you know like say like dyslexia and stuff like that in relation to poor housing so you've got the overall yeah. of the justice system you've got how children are looked after when they're in the secure estate mm 
yeah. also resettlement as well. So once they're in the, you know, the secure estate or they've had a sentence passed on them, what yeah. happens? How is that child coming back into society? And yeah, quite yeah. often the children, children are, you know, are coming to notice a lot, lot older now. You know, you're looking at kind of 15 years of age and above. So they're not long off mm-hmm. becoming adults. So it's yeah, yeah. very, very important. It's always been important. It's even more important now that we kind yeah. of think, okay, how do we ensure that, that these children are rehabilitated back in society, yeah. uh, able to feel part of society so they can get back into education, training and, and employment where, where appropriate? Yeah. So those so, are the key themes that we're looking at at the moment, as well as child first, which I spoke about earlier on, which is a huge topic in itself. So, so one of the one of the what was sort of real sort of music to my ears really uh, recently. Andy Cook, who was the former chief constable of Merseyside, uh, moved on recently. I think he's moving to um, what was HMIC, but it's got some um, ridiculously long acronym. I can never remember now. HMIC FRS or something, isn't it? Uh, the the, inspe- the, the, uh, the inspectorate, um, and he and he basically said uh, if he was given uh, a magic wand and five billion pounds to spend on cutting crime, he would spend at least half of it on tackling poverty. And, and I totally agree with that, that, you know, unless you get upstream of all of this stuff and you get into um, those families to support them very, very early, um, when things, before things start going really badly wrong, then all you're doing is uh, is picking up the pieces, aren't you? And uh, and, and the, the cost to society, the cost to the criminal justice system, to to the the damage to the family unit, to um, wider society, and car- the cost of incarceration, all of that stuff can be prevented if you put the resources in really, really early, doesn't it? I so, so agree with you. I, I think the real challenge is, and that's one of the um, conversations and conversations having quite loudly at, at, at the moment in my role with senior colleagues and, and the like around this. The challenge for us is around evidencing what, what you have said. I don't think there's been enough um, work done in relation to providing the evidence about where we should be, well, we know where we should be focused, but then proving the tangible outcomes that come from this. At the end of the day, we're spending public money. Yeah. And it's, and it's being able to justify to the public that this money that you're going to spend on this individual is going to prove this outcome. I don't think we'll ever get to what I'm talking about, being able to prove that. Mm -hmm. But it's around being able to increase the evidence around this preventative bit. And I think there needs to be more work done Mm -hmm. around that because we can see the gaps. We can see, you know, I'm sure that you and I can see children that touch policing and they revolved around policing. I call it only kind of edge of the criminal mm. justice system, yeah, 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 and they um, and we looked at the offence that those children had committed. Mm. They'd probably get some NFA or something like that. No further action excuse the kind of acronym slipping in there, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they we wouldn't be dealing with what was happening in that child's life. Mm-hmm. Now I think it's an ar- argument is to we should be looking at not at what that offence is, not what the offence has been committed. That we doesn't mean we ignore that, mm-hmm. but we need to look at the why. Yeah. As well as dealing with the behaviour, we need to yeah. deal with why has that behaviour occurred. And I don't think there's enough focus on that. And my and my real passion here around this is not around ignoring bad behaviour. It's understanding why that bad behaviour occurred. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. there'll be something has happened behind which has led up to it. And then you deal with that. Yes. Then you prevent it. But it might it might in some people's eyes lead to some disproportionate activity. And I yeah. hate the term for low-level offending. Mm, but yeah. I bet you, if you look at low-level offending, what's happening in around what we call low-level offending, we are going to spot a whole level of untapped vulnerabilities that haven't been dealt with. Yeah, definitely. And, and certainly, um, when I, my last uh, sort of role in the last 12 months of my career was project managing the National Data Analytics Solution, uh, which was the first sort of serious attempt by law enforcement to use machine learning and artificial intelligence to um, understand serious crime and specifically gun and knife crime. And, and certainly, you know, the data shows this fairly clearly that uh, the offending sort of in terms of the predictive indicators, for want of a better word, you can chart that journey uh, of some of those prolific offenders from from a very, very young age, can't you, um, from probably, you know, nine, 10 years old when they start 
getting involved with the police for those very, very sort of inadvertent commas trivial offences. But um, but yeah. So listen, um, conscious of your time, uh, just one other thing I just want to sort of sort of ask you about a little bit, just to sort of you know again hats off to you because uh, you you've, you've you're a very very busy man. So you were you were you've been one of the ten. Uh, members of of that uh, the commission on race and ethnic disparities, which was set up by the government back in two thousand and twenty. So I imagine that's taken up quite a lot of your time as well. Yeah, it has it has taken up quite a lot of my time, but um, really, you know, it, it came out it came out of partly out of the um, death of George Floyd, and that was an awful time whereby somebody was murdered by a, by a police officer and then with the Black Lives movements and the real call for people to be treated fairly. I think that's what mm-hmm. people wanted was to be treated fairly. Whoever you are, are you, you know, it's around fairness and equity of, in, of, of, in, of, in, you know, of involvement in, in, the, in the community. And I think that just helped to amplify what was happening in society and again reignite people's focus on this so for me the commission was an opportunity to actually try and turn an awful incident and see what is it that we need to do across the country to deal with those significant disparities first of all what are those disparities and then try and then try and suggest make some recommendations to the government about what should be done Okay, and are, are you going to are you going to be involved in that sort of on an ongoing basis, or are you done, are you sort of, uh, sort of stepping away from that now? Uh, the report's been submitted into um, the prime minister's back on the thirty first of March. The, the it was submitted back to the prime minister on behalf of the, the government. But our our involvement, the commission's involvement, is ongoing at the moment because as right, you're okay. probably aware, the government hasn't hasn't responded to the recommendations, and that's the real important key point for me now. Mm-hmm. Is what a government going to do in relation to those twenty-four recommendations that we put forward? Because yeah. I think they're they're an absolute, you know, they're a real opportunity for some significant mm-hmm. positive change in relation yeah. to uh, trust, fairness, increasing a- agency, yeah. and also yeah. inclusivity across across the country. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I've read the whole report. I have. I have read a bit on crime and justice. Um, I, I find it really, really interesting. Fantastically well balanced. I think that's what I would say. Um, I was. I was really, really, really encouraged by the stuff in there. I actually use a lot of those resources myself now because right. you know there's some. There's a lot of hard work put into that report, wasn't there? You know, yeah. very, very similar to the Police Foundation report on strategic uh, review of policing. Again, some fantastic stuff in there. And anyone who's listening to this who who uh, is interested in this stuff, have a look at both um, both that report from the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities. Um, the stuff on criminal justice was was really really good. And equally, I would really urge anyone to read the Strategic Review of Policing by the Police Foundation. Really, a f- another fantastic document. But um, listen, Keith, I'm conscious of your time. Uh, we've done an hour now, which I think um, you know, with a man with a, a man with a, uh, a diary as full as yours, I think it'd be uh, kind of unrealistic to expect any more of you. But um, can I just say what an absolute joy it's been chatting to you and to see you again and to hear of everything that you've been doing? It's been really great, and uh, and I look forward to. Uh, seeing you go to um, bigger and better things, I'd say Keith Fraser for Prime Minister. That's what I say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going anywhere near politics. You tried to drag me there earlier on with your comments, but I'm not going anywhere near politics. <laughs> <laughs> I did say that with a smile on my face. But, uh, <laughs> no, um, listen, my friend, it's been great, and uh, I wish you well. And um, I shall watch your career with uh, the greatest of interest. Likewise, Ian. No, really, really appreciate the invite. And it has felt like a nice chat, really. It's kind of brought back some real positive memories and also a bit of hope around the future as well. So, you know, hats off to you as well for what you're doing, Rose, to bringing this out of people. Well, you know, it's been, it's an interesting one because um, there must be a few people who used to work with me in the past just thinking, oh my God, he's completely lost the plot. You know what I mean? He's he's properly gone crackers, you know? Um, he's written this book. He's on doing this podcast. He's he's voicing some fairly kind of outspoken views, but 
I think the good thing for me, Keith, is that two years on after leaving the police, you do step away from it and you sort of have a period of reflection. And, you know, I've, I've got overwhelmingly happy memories of policing, overwhelmingly. But it, it, it does grieve me to sort of see, you know, the impact of the last 10 years. And I sincerely hope um, that, that the organisation can kind of get back on its feet again, because I think it's taken a real knock. And, um, you know, and hopefully uh, with good people and a fair wind behind it and some sympathetic treatment from politicians and the press, then that can happen. But uh, anyway, enough for that. Listen, my friend, thank you ever so much. And uh, I look forward to catching up with you another time soon. Ian, take care and thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure. Cheers. So there you go. The very wonderful Keith Fraser. What an absolute pleasure it was chatting to him. Really uh, great to hear how his life has developed and changed since leaving the police. I really enjoyed working with Keith whenever we were in the Westminster Police together. Keith was very much an individual. He didn't uh, swallow the corporate pill. He said things as they were uh, and challenged uh, where people needed to be challenged. Uh, and, you know, he challenged me as well. Uh, he certainly wasn't the sort of individual who would just kind of, um, you know, accept what he was told. But the thing I really liked about him was that he did it with such good humour and there was never any sense of him sort of uh, pulling rank or anything like that. It was just all done as a very grown-up um, conversation rather than a, I'm a superintendent and you're a chief inspector and you'll do what you're told. It was never anything like that. So I think the key takeaways really for me in that were that firstly, uh, there is definitely not just a life beyond policing when people leave policing, but there's also a life full of richness and variety and opportunity. So I would say to anyone who's leaving the police, grab life with both hands and be ambitious for yourself and don't let yourself be talked out of doing things or uh, if there's something you want to do, just, just do it. The other really interesting thing for me was that when Keith was talking about his early years in the police, now bearing in mind this was 1985, and then he got posted to a part of London that was predominantly white, and the overwhelming sort of narrative around policing is that every black police officer in those days was the victim of racist bullying, both by members of the public as well as internally from their colleagues. Now, it would be completely wrong of me to suggest that that didn't happen, because I'm sure it did. But what was really, really interesting was to hear Keith talking about that period of his career and to say that it never happened really to him. So I suppose what I'd say to people who just automatically jump to this very lazy stereotype that the police is a deeply racist organisation is, is to say this, in my experience, it's not in my experience, I never saw it and I never heard it. So before people jump to this instant assumption that all police officers are racists and that the organisation is endemically a racist organisation, they should listen more to people like Keith Fraser. And there are other black officers out there as well. I'm not going to embarrass them by naming them, but who have been quite outspoken on this issue and attacked that lazy stereotype saying uh, they had a fantastic career, they were treated well by their colleagues and they were generally treated very well by members of the public. So um, like everything in life, it's very dangerous to make assumptions about people and it's even more dangerous to make assumptions about entire organisations. Right, I'm going to leave it there. Look forward to spending time with you again next week. Um, next week I'm going to be speaking to Scott Walker, who's uh, an ex-colleague of mine from Special Branch uh, in New Scotland Yard. And Scott's going to be talking all about kidnap, extortion, uh, how the police deal with kidnaps. And then Scott went into the world of corporate, uh, global corporate security, where he has negotiated the release of individuals who have been kidnapped by terrorist organisations, by organised crime groups in foreign countries, uh, aid workers, NGO workers, all sorts of people who find themselves unfortunately in the hands of people they really wouldn't want to be in the hands of. So Scott's going to tell us all about that and I'm really looking forward to hearing about it. 
Okay, in the meantime, have a good week, and I'll see you next week. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>